Good morning, beloved family and friends. I'm not sure whether they are uh, relatives and friends of the families who dedicated their babies this morning. If you're here, I also want to welcome you. My name is Oliver. I'm one of the pastors here in this church. I'm really glad to meet you. Today, we'll be taking a break from a series of talk from 1 Samuel, and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 2 instead. And as part of our gatherings on Sundays, we'll spend a large part of our time looking at the Bible and explaining it. Because we believe this is God's word to us, and we want to understand it. And before we get into today's talk, let us pray in preparation to the hearing of God's word. Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our need for Jesus Christ, our Savior. And make the book live to us. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Now picture this with me. A dinner conversation on the flat rooftop of a house between a young man and his two friends in first century Israel. Can you believe this is possible? Your friend who was paralyzed, healed. I could hardly believe my eyes when I saw him walking about the marketplace yesterday. Yes, replies the young man. I can hardly believe it myself. I was amazed that he actually got up, picked up his bedroll, and went home when we brought him to a Bible study session by Jesus last week. What happened? His friends asked. Well, three other friends of the paralyzed man and I heard about this miracle worker called Jesus from Galilee, who has healed many others. And now we heard that he was right here at home here in Capernaum, right in this very town. So we brought our paralyzed friend to his home, believing that Jesus can heal him. However, there was this huge crowd outside his home and we couldn't get to him. So what did you do? Well, one of the others came out with a brilliant plan. We got onto the roof of the home, which was flat like this, and we started digging. We dug a hole and boy, it was, it was really messy. But in the end, we managed to get a big enough hole to lower our paralyzed friend to Jesus. And I jumped down and got to his side only to hear Jesus saying to my paralyzed friend, Son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I remember at that point, I was like, Oh, what? I mean, my friend's problem was that he was paralyzed, right? What is all this talk about forgiveness of sins? I mean, his real problem was his physical need to be healed. And well, right? You know, I was frustrated and I thought, Jesus, you really do need to understand what the real problem is. Well, what happened next? His dinner, dinner companions continue to ask him for the full story. Well, replies the young man. As usual, you know, a couple of stuck-up religious lawyers who were present created trouble. You know, they accused Jesus of speaking sacrilegiously against God. Yeah, oh-oh, yeah. You know, they were whispering among themselves... Who does this Jesus think he is? Just what power has he to say that he forgives sins? And his dinner companion leaned forward. Jesus told them, Which is easier, 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And to show them that he had the power to do so, Jesus told my paralyzed friend to get up and walk. And he did. He was healed with just one word from Jesus. And boy, was the crowd amazed. Wow, his dinner companions exclaimed, This Jesus sounds amazing. I wonder what else we can expect him to be doing next. What I just told was a creative retelling of a possible account retold from the perspective of one of the four friends of the paralyzed man in Mark 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to this familiar passage in Mark 2, verse 1 to 12. And let us now see what the Bible itself tells us of this incident. And as we look at this passage here, we see that the Bible answers three questions that were raised by the young man above. Namely, what is our problem? What is our real problem? The second, what power does Jesus have? And lastly, what has Jesus come to do? However, before we jump into Mark 2, verse 1 to 12, we need to catch up on the story so far so we can understand what is going on. And Mark, in chapter 1, tells us that his story was written to tell us about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God brings his developing plan to save a people for himself to fulfillment, to culmination in Jesus Christ. And Jesus' message was to repent or turn from your sin and to believe or to turn to the gospel or the good news that Jesus himself was actually preaching. Jesus, as the Son of God, also comes with authority and power from God. And we see Jesus demonstrating his power and authority in Mark chapter 1. We see him calling his first disciples and they immediately follow him. We see Jesus teaching with authority we see Jesus casting out unclean spirits and demons. We see Jesus healing many people of their illness, including the leper whom we see just before today's passage. As a result, large crowds were attracted to Jesus and they came to him. And this is where we get to today's passage, where we see Jesus' power and authority on display. Remember the first question, what is our real problem? We see in Mark 2, verse 1 to 5, it gives us the answer to this question as Jesus exposes our real problem. Here as I read Mark 2, verse 1 to 5, And when he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there, were, there was no more room. That there was no room left in the house. And people even jam-packed the doorway. But Jesus continues to proclaim the word to them. And thus, kind of like a Bible study with them, we see in verse 2. And this is where we're introduced to the paralyzed man and his four friends. These four friends 
couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds. So they improvised, they dug a hole in the roof of Jesus' home, and through the roof they led the bed on which the paralyzed man laid down to Jesus' feet. We see this in verse 4. And when Jesus sees that his four friends and the paralyzed man trusted that Jesus could meet the paralyzed man's real and deepest need, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, Sons, Son, your sins are forgiven. And if you were a careful reader of the text, this is where we get thrown for a loop. I mean, if I were one of Jesus' disciples present there, I would have gone, um, uh, uh, Jesus, you can obviously see that this man is paralyzed, right? I mean, look at his, his, his legs. You know, he can't, his legs are all also um, without his muscles and he can't get up to walk. I mean, let's get on with the game plan. You heal this man, you restore him to full physical health, just like you did for many others before. And then we can get back to our Bible study. But Jesus does not do so. Rather, he proclaims to the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. Just what is going on here? Just what is Jesus doing? For those who are in the medical profession among us, there's a medical condition called referred pain, also called reflective pain. I mean, I'm not an expert. I looked this up on a Wikipedia. Okay? This is where pain is displaced. It's perceived at one location other than a site of the painful stimulus. An example is that of a heart attack, where the pain is often felt in the neck, shoulders, and back, rather than the chest, the actual site of injury. Can you imagine if you're having a heart attack and instead of running and rushing off to see the cardiologist, you go for shoulder and neck massage instead? It sounds almost humorous, right? It's almost ludicrous. But in this case, mistreatment can be fatal. You see, my friends, you have to dig deeper and go beyond the perceived area of pain and find the real area of injury. And this is exactly what Jesus does when he confronts the paralyzed man with his sins. He goes beyond the perceived need to find out the real problem. His real problem is exposed. It is his sin. And just what is sin? You know, many of us, when we say the word sin, if you're in a Christian circle, you think of doing something wrong. But you see, when the Bible speaks about sin, as one pastor, Tim Keller, writes, it's not just referring to bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world that God has made. Is rebelling against God by living without reference to Him. It's saying to God, you know God, I will decide exactly how I will live my own life. And Jesus tells us that this is our main problem. You see, Jesus is, con- is confronting the paralyzed man with his main problem by actually digging deeper. 
the paralyzed man is probably thinking that if he is healed of his paralysis, then his problems will be solved. But Jesus goes to the root of the real problem, the man's sin problem. Don't we find that many of us fall into the same misdiagnosis of the problem as well? How many of us tell ourselves, if I have a better job that earns me more money, then my problems will be solved? How many of us tell ourselves, if my children will better behave, then my problems will be solved. How many of us tell ourselves, if we get better grades or better qualifications, then my problems will be solved. If this were to happen, then I'll be happy and content. But my friends, we are discontent, not because we do not get what we want. Rather, it is that we what is that we want the wrong things. Let me repeat that. We are discontent, not because we do not get what we want, but rather it is that we want the wrong things. You see, the root of the of our discontent, the root of discontent of the human heart goes deep. Sin has affected the deepest part of our heart. We want the wrong things. And discontentment follows as a result. The Bible tells us that our real problem is that every one of us has sin. When we say to God, I'm going to live my life on my own terms, when we look to something or someone else to solve our problems and give us contentment, we actually turn that thing or person into our saviour. We functionally turn that thing or person into our saviour. It could be our jobs or money, our children or loved one, our grades and qualification. And let me, you, let, let me let you in on a secret. It can even be Christian ministry. And when something other than Jesus becomes our saviour, we ultimately feel more empty, more unhappy, more discontented. You see, Jesus is the only Savior that forgives us and fulfills us. Every other thing cannot forgive or fulfill us. Our real problem is exposed. It is sin. And we need a Savior that can forgive our sins. And this is where we come to Mark chapter 2, verse 6 to 12. Remember our second question? Remember our second question? Just what power does Jesus have? Just what power does Jesus have? Listen again as I read Mark chapter 2, verse 6 to 12, and we'll see what the Bible says. Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question among within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Rise 
take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. After Jesus proclaims to the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven, we're introduced to some scribes who were present. Scribes were the religious lawyers of the day. And in their hearts, they were questioning and doubting Jesus. Just who is this Jesus? What gives him the right to speak like this? He's speaking sacrilegiously about God. For the scribe knows that only God alone can forgive sins. Verse 6 and 7. You see, these religious lawyers who are well-versed in the Old Testament scripture, they will remember Psalm 32.5, which says, Finally, I confess all my sins to you and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you, here it means and refers to God, forgive me. All my guilt is gone. And also Isaiah 43.25, which says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake, mean God's own sake, and I will never think of them again. Only God can forgive sin. And the and scribes know this full well. So the scribes actually got their theology right, at least pertaining to the Old Testament. When they hear Jesus claiming to have the authority and power to forgive sins, they hear Jesus claiming to do only what God can do. And this to them is blasphemy. And Jesus, perceiving the questions and doubts of the scribes, confronts them. He confronts their questioning and doubting hearts with a question of his own. Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? This is actually a very strange question. But the key to understand this is which is easier to say. Which is easier to say. It's like me telling you I'm a kind person, okay? As opposed to me saying I'm a person who does acts of kindness by buying people lunch. The former is easier for me to say because I don't really need to prove it, okay? However, the latter is harder for me to say because you all can actually test me later by asking me to buy lunch for you to see whether I do acts of kindness. Okay, this, this really is for illustration's sake. So don't all queue up outside my office later, my study later, asking me to buy lunch for you. Okay? But the point is, so for Jesus, it's easier for him to say, your sins are forgiven, as he doesn't quite need to prove it. But for Jesus to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, this is harder. Because the paralyzed man has to, at that moment, Jesus speaks to him, pick up his bedroll and walk, proving that he has been healed. And what happens? Undaunted, Jesus calling himself the Son of Man here, shows to all his authority to forgive sin. Verse 10, real power 
is revealed. Jesus says to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 11. And immediately the paralyzed man in front of everyone picked up his bedroll and walked. He was healed of his paralysis. And everyone present, they were amazed and praised God for the miracle. Jesus heals the paralyzed man to prove to all present his ability to heal. Okay? Thus demonstrating that he is the Lord with the power to forgive sins. It's a lot harder to say that he heals someone than to say that he forgives someone. Jesus is signaling his power to do the latter, to forgive sins by accomplishing the former, to heal the man. But this doesn't just means this. Because as uh, again, Pastor Tim Keller again observes, Jesus is also in effect saying, my friends, it's going to be infinitely harder to effect the forgiveness of sins than you can imagine. I am not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior. Any miracle worker can say, take up your mat and walk. But only the Savior of the world can say to a human being, all your sins are forgiven. Real power is revealed. Jesus, as Savior of the world, has power to forgive sins. We see in this passage, the Gospel writer Mark tells his readers that their real problem is sin. And Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So now what? So now what? We should realize that sin is our real problem. And our response should be a turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. For my non-Christian friends who are maybe just visiting us today, or for those who have attended services at Grace regularly for a while who are not yet Christians, I urge you this day to turn to Jesus and trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. I hope you see today that we all, Christians and non-Christians alike without exception, have a real problem. And that is sin. Sin, as we saw, is saying to God who is good and who made us, I want to make my own decisions in my life. I don't want you, don't want you, the God who created me, to be God over me. I want to be my own God over my own life. It's living in rebellion without any reference or regard to God. And we see today that sin ultimately brings discontentment, it brings emptiness, it brings dissatisfaction. And we see today how Jesus offers to save us, to bring us forgiveness and fulfillment. When we turn from our sins, and when we turn from our sins, we are in fact, in effect telling God, God, I want you to be the God in my life. I'm wrong to want to run my life my way. 
And then by doing so, we turn to Jesus Christ and trusting Him for who He is. That is our Savior, your Savior, my Savior. We trust that Jesus saves us from our sins. And my friend, if this is what you want this day, my brother pastors and elders and I will be standing at the doors and we can speak to you after this service. If this is the response of your heart, please do not leave without speaking to one of us. This is a really, really, really important matter. What about Christians? I'm not going to let you all go. For the Christians, we see how easily it is to let other things or other people become our functional saviour. If we are honest and we examine our hearts, we find things and people other than Jesus. And, and these this things and um, people, they constantly battle for our devotion and our allegiance. Examine your hearts by asking yourself these few diagnosis questions. The first is, if I have blank, then my life will be happy and better and all my problems will be solved. I repeat, if I have blank, okay, then my life will be happy and better and all my problems will be solved. If something else other than Jesus is in the blank, it's likely that that is your functional saviour. Another question to, you can be asking is, what overwhelmingly disappoints you? When we feel overwhelmed by disappointment, it's a good sign that something or someone has become far more important to us than it should be. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying we should never be disappointed. But rather, when our disappointment becomes disproportionate, it actually reveals our displaced longing. We long for something or someone else more than we long for Jesus. And our question is, what do you constantly complain about? Ouch! I know William is laughing there. Ouch! This speaks to all of us as Singaporeans. What do we constantly complain about? This is similar to the previous question, but this one is more about what we constantly say and express in our speech. And this is a good question to be asking someone else, a, a Christian brother or sister, for input into your life. Constant complaining may reveal our heart's desire for something or someone to work in a certain way for us in order that we may be happy and satisfied. And when it fails, we get indignant just because it didn't go according to our desires. And we complain. So my friends, I ask you to examine yourself and to root out your substitute functional saviour. Because ultimately, if you trust in a substitute saviour, it will only bring you discontentment and dissatisfaction. And I ask you to repent and turn to Jesus alone as your saviour. We just had our baby dedication. You know, I'm privileged and honoured to be have been asked by Wenpin and Sydney to be baby Matthew's godfather. Yeah, I'm, I'm now a parent. <laughs> 
And after, a couple of weeks after I became Matthew's godparent, I actually remembered myself at a bookstore. I think I was with someone else here. And I was looking at books for myself. And suddenly I realized that I lost interest in looking books for myself and I ended up browsing in the child section of the bookstore to shop for something for the baby. I mean, for those of you who know me, can you imagine that, me, standing in the baby section looking for something for, for, for baby or child? And the reason I'm sharing this is that in some small way, I can understand how parents desire the best for their child. If I only as a godparent want to give Matthew something good, understand how parents among us want to give the best to their child. You want to meet their needs, sometimes you try to meet all their needs. I think this desire to provide for your child and meet their needs is right and good. But I'd like to sound a caution here. Beware that in your desire to meet their needs, you neglect your child's real and true need. Remember to turn to Jesus as the one who can meet your child's real and true need. And I speak to the parent, the parents who, and grandparents who just dedicated their babies today. Remember your child's real and true need. And pray for them and raise them in a way that will provide opportunities for them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Only Jesus can meet your child's real and true need. Not you. If you remember the start of the talk, I asked three questions. What is our real problem? What power does Jesus have? And what has Jesus come to do? You realize I haven't answered the last question. You see, Bible scholars have said that as early as chapter 2 in Mark, the shadow of the cross falls across Jesus' path. You see, by claiming to forgive sins and taking upon himself the authority and power to forgive sins, which only God has, Jesus sets himself in conflict with the religious leaders, which leads ultimately to his crucifixion on the cross. And in his crucifixion and death, Jesus solves the central question in the Old Testament, characterized by Exodus 34, 6-7, which states that God is merciful and just. I mean, how can God be merciful and just? If He is just, there's a payment for sins committed. A price has to be paid. If He is merciful, He will forgive our sins. So how can sinners be forgiven and yet pay for our sins? And we see the answer in what Jesus says, in what Jesus says that he, he actually comes to do in Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes to serve us as our Saviour. By giving His life on the cross as a ransom for many, there is a payment for sin. But Jesus paid the price on our behalf. Justice is met. There is forgiveness for sinners. By what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, He offers forgiveness to all. Mercy is given. 
justice and mercy meets at the cross. Jesus, our Savior, is crucified and dies on the cross so that our true need might be met, that our sins might be forgiven. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a just and merciful God who has planned for our salvation accomplished by Jesus. We confess that many times we have sought after other functional saviors and have not turned to Jesus as our only saviour. We repent and turn to Jesus as the only one who can meet our real and true need, that of forgiveness of sins. We thank you for Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins on our behalf on the cross. And we pray that we might lift out our identity as forgiven sinners so that our lives may be a reflection of your glory. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, Amen.